0: welcome to the adaptive edge podcast i am greg murray the founder of adaptive edge coaching and developmental psychologist. and so with the adaptive edge podcast we bring you the latest research in neuroscience and psychology and discuss how it applies to everyday life um, today we'll be discussing the latest research on emotions and motivation in learning as well as emotions and culture I'm um, talking about research from affective neuroscience and social psychology, developmental psychology and the education system. And so I've got the perfect person here to talk about that with today, Evgenia Efremova. Um We met at Harvard where she was studying mind, brain and education. Um, so she brings in the neuroscience side big time. And um, I was, of course, studying the developmental psychology path there. Um, so. She's now a researcher in motivation and learning at the Brain Lab of Ural Federal University um, that's in Russia, and she's academic director at the Global Ambassador International Education. Um, So I'm really excited to chat with you today, Evgenia, but why don't you give us um, a bit about your background um, and what brings you into this field of study?
1: Hi, Greg. Hi everyone. It's good to be with you. Uh, So I was born and raised in uh, Russia in a very small town. And then at the age of 15, I unexpectedly uh, went to the US and I spent two years of high school in Portland, Oregon and then I got accepted uh, to Mount Holyoke College. So I spent four years at Mount Holyoke. It's a very diverse institution that attracts students from all over the world. During that time, I had an opportunity to travel to China a couple of times. I did study abroad and internships. I also uh, had a chance to work at, uh, in South Korea in Seoul and uh, you know, after my Mount Polic experience, I decided to go back to China to study economics and the Chinese language. And at that time I decided that actually I was uh, driven to go back to Russia and use my international experience to provide others with similar opportunities. So my partner and I, we traveled back to uh, Yekaterinburg. That's the city where I am now. Uh, We have established global ambassador, and that's what we do. We send students abroad. And uh, I think it was about... um 10 years after I graduated from my first program that I decided that I need to get additional degree in, uh, that kind of lays at the intersection of neuroscience and education, because I was observing certain challenges among my students, specifically in mastering, uh, academic English. Mm. And I really wanted to understand what's going on in the brain and why, uh, academic English is, uh so difficult for uh, for many international students, and that's how I ended up uh, at Harvard, uh, and onset my research uh, on uh, motivation and and learning, and mm-hmm. what I'm doing now.
0: Good, that's great. So you got that nice real world experience before going back to the theory, um, and I think that's always great when you can get inspired from you know, like you said, working with the students that you were working with, wanting to know how to help them more. Uh, wanting to know what's going on in the mind and the brain uh, with the, with your case specifically with language so I appreciate you bringing that up you, I forgot you're the expert in language too I yeah. <laughs> uh, I remember watching your presentations at Harvard and uh, and, and editing was,
1: it as well
0: <laughs> and editing sometimes I really enjoyed those but yes yeah so that's great and um, I'm really excited to talk about all of these things with you uh, from theory and then of course how it How it can apply to to our life every day not only for those of us who have kids um, or might be in school right now but um just learning is we do it throughout our life so learning growth and change and the emotional components and the motivation involved happens at work it happens in your personal life too so really pumped to talk um why don't we start off by talking about you know uh emotions and learning uh affective neuroscience and um, this, this, uh, angle and you and I have discussed, you know, this in depth and Mary Helen Immordino Yang, we saw her speak in Miami. She's brilliant. Um, she says it's literally neurobiologically impossible to think about things deeply or remember something about which you've had no emotion. So I love this quote by her. Um, and she's, you know, Stanford top, top of the, top of the game, um, ne- educational neuroscientist basically and just really highlighting the importance of emotion in learning. Um, she's talking about memory and deep thinking, um, and we know as well how important it is for motivation. So um, let's talk a, bo- a bit about that, you know, how does how does this show up for, for your work and um, why are emotions so important in learning?
1: Yes, that's a very important uh, question. And I, I, I see how that works in, uh, my work at Global Ambassador specifically because we have a range of students here and most of them want to learn English, but they want to do this with a, for a very different reasons, so there are some who just want to learn for their own sake. And that is a very uh, vague goal, which is unclear how they're gonna apply it. And then mm-hmm. we have another side, we have students who uh, have uh, a deep motivation or even calling to develop in a certain professional field or to you know uh, improve certain problems. And for this reasons, they want to go abroad, get additional education. And usually this kind of students, they, uh, you know, they are much more motivated to learn, even if they may not be, Uh, they may not have the same lower level of English, but uh, with that, they are able to master complex things much faster. So Mm -hmm. that uh, emotional uh, component that drives uh, them, helps them be better learners. And uh, that's very evident among most of our students.
0: Right. And this is we can look at it from a lot of different ways, but for my background, I'm thinking immediately, well, this is is this identity development, you know, is it uh, when the person is invested because they want, they know what they want to do with the information there. Um, You know, in my experience too, is either they can incorporate this into their professional identity, their role identity of how they're going to impact the world. Right. Um, Or they empathize with the content in some personal way, um, whether they connect to it with their values um, or, you know, their background experiences in their family. Uh, you know, it's just that empathy that's so key. Um, so
1: I have also noticed this, not just among students, but among my colleagues. For example, when, uh, uh, when my colleagues really have this deep connection to the field and they understand that their actions, uh, teaching or uh, consulting, uh, have an impact on someone's life, Mm-hmm. they are much more invested in that person and uh, it's easier for them to cope with challenges. They are more optimistic in general. And so there are, there are so many positive side effects uh, just because they attach uh, meaning to their actions. Yes. So I think that's, that's exactly also how emotions influence uh, your motivation. And actually it was Mary Helen's research as well, where they have identified that when people uh Uh, those people who succeed and they uh, feel purpose, there is purpose behind uh, their brain uh, areas, the brain areas that are activated are the same as uh, those survival mechanisms. And so it's Mm. just, uh, they argue that basically the brain repurposes to uh, give, to serve your needs and to give you uh, energy and life when you have the purpose and those students mm. or, and those people who just did work for the sake of work those uh, brain areas are not activated and so this is very interesting um, finding I, I think
0: I agree and um, it's like the lights turn on uh, as well you know the, uh, the the kids come alive or the student or the learner whoever it is Uh, maybe it's an adult person you're coaching, once they process these things and they make meaning out of the world, um, they begin to self-author and and really know what they want to give back. I really like this concept of um, the example that you gave that was about how having a purpose to apply this and give back to somebody or impact someone else's life. um, I think this pro-social element and how it energizes you literally lights up your brain is what you're saying. So think about how Think about how we're wired to connect, you know? It's really, really, really deep, and I love that.
1: Yeah, because through others' achievements, you find the the meaning to to your own behavior, and that means purpose, life purpose, so that's that's great.
0: Yeah. This is what we
1: should strive for at schools, I think.
0: I agree. So getting them invested is one way of, you know, emotionally invested, identifying with the content or their future, but emotion also in a micro, sociological aspect um matters in the sense of you know students have emotional home bases right um and we've got this the zone of proximal development uh this is vygotsky and uh this is this all goes together so it's something that teachers parents anybody who's developing others coaches uh, but really everybody helps other people so everybody can use this information so um talk a little bit about that the emotional home base and, and zone of proximal development and how that shows up
1: oh this is also very very good so uh i'm very excited to talk about it <laughs> so every person uh i love it based on yes the their uh the combination of genes and their uh environment basically um have have created a certain state of mind when you feel yourself, right? We can probably identify what is that state when we feel uh, ourselves. Right. And then whenever there is an external stimuli, it's all, it's like uh, it's a stress factor. It could be a positive stress, a negative stress. So, uh, any kind of uh, stress factor stimuli uh, moves you out. uh, So, you react and it moves you out of your uh, home base. So, you get excited, you get depressed, and things like this. And so, for each individual, a home base uh, is different. And also, how far away you go from the home base is also very different even if the stimuli is the same and also how quickly you get back to your home base is also very different so let's now uh, imagine a class full of 30 students you know a very typical for example uh, state school in russia and you Mm -hmm. have all these 30 students who have completely uh, different home bases uh, variability and attractor strength how quickly they get back and then they are exposed to a certain task, you know? Some of them get really stressed out. Uh, they, they go far away from their home base and it may take them a long time to get back. What does mm-hmm. it mean? Uh, we have to understand that whenever uh, we experience stress, right, mm-hmm. uh, our prefrontal cortex that is involved in uh, functions that uh, we use for learning, such as decision making, planning, evaluation, assessment, basically it uh, it 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 turns off, and as a result, students can't really think. And Mm. so many teachers do not realize it. And so we expect that if we expose students to stress, they can, they should equally well perform on the test, but that's not how it works. And so it's, Mm. uh, this idea suggests that it's very important to understand the individual needs of the students and to actually offer more options uh, Mm. to, for them to be able to choose an option that uh, reflects how uh, they learn best and then slowly train to the, uh, I don't know, to the um, uh, benchmark that we are looking at. Yeah. So the zone of proximal development, because I think it's very important to get it across. So for a student to uh, be motivated to learn, there are several conditions that have to be satisfied. We have already discussed that uh, a student should be able to see the meaning and uh, own that meaning um right that's reason number one the second one uh the student should be competent to do it right so the difficulty of the task should be uh should be um what do i say the the level the difficulty level of the task and should match his current abilities because if it doesn't a student gets stressed out, and then we know that stress leads to basically ineffective learning. Mm. Also, a student should be able to exercise autonomy. So that's the self-determination theory, the points that uh, Mm, the theory autonomy that a student can choose uh, the goal. He is able to choose how he wants to write the test. For example, there should be options, right? Yes. And also he should feel related uh, not only to what uh, a person is learning, but also feel supported by the teachers, feel a part of the class. Because if there are tensions among uh, with the teacher or with the class, that creates, uh, again, unstable emotional mm-hmm. uh, extra stress factor that would deter that person from the home base. And as a result, a person will not learn. They yes. know the material perfectly, but that little fact could actually ruin the whole motivation for learning. So when kids or adults or colleagues are not motivated, it's important to check each of the factors and see uh, what is missing, and then you can um, work from there.
0: Yes, I love that. I love self-determination theory, actually. And I was researching this last year. I wrote a blog on the, the, the relationship between that and identity. And um, I just want to mention that. So you're talking about autonomy, competence, and relatedness. And they, these are, what Jenny is saying is that these are the requirements for growth in educational st- you know, setting. Um, and if we link that to a identity, so identity theory is coming from social psychology. And if you look at it from a developmental lens, then you can think about this and put them together, self-determination theory and identity theory. So identity is, we've got four, ide- four types of identities, right? Personal identity, uh, role identity, group identity, and then social identity, which is what I think a lot of times people are thinking of when they hear the word identity. Um, so autonomy, right? In Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is how a person is, differs from other people, right? They have a choices to make. They have some freedom. They're, they're saying, this is how I'm going to distinguish myself from others and this is personal identity and this is, is literally the exact some of the same criteria for establishing personal identities think about how are you different there is the element of what part of you do you carry over between your groups and your roles and what maintains consistency but essentially it's what are you different and uh, so autonomy and personal identity and then you think about competence well this is role identity 100 percent. you know are you a good student are you a good teacher are you competent at the role you know, that you're fulfilling in the society. And then with relatedness, we've got the other two group identity and social. So group yeah, identity, nice. you know, what you're a part of the family you're you're part of the if you're a woman, right, you're now part of uh, this, this group socially. And so um, really, really cool how they're compatible, right? I love that
1: it's yes very much so this is uh, the motivational theory or actually you know even the smart goal setting if you think about it it's very much related to the self-determination theory and it is attached to every single pillar of uh, that theory so it it works anywhere when it comes to motivation
0: Mm, I love it. Um, you know, just to wrap up here on emotions and learning, I want to talk about a phenomenon that is affecting a lot of people out there, um, which is math anxiety. And um, where, where is this coming from? And is this, is this culturally created? And, um, you know, how, how to overcome this type of thing?
1: Yes, so I think that uh, at least again, putting things in perspective, and uh, when I was in the United States, some one thing that I've noticed is that uh, there is this whole culture of math anxiety and people talk about it all the time. And I was always thinking, why is there so much math anxiety? Because Uh, I don't feel that in Russia, for example, it's the same thing. And so math is uh, just uh, the same subject as uh, any other subject at school and uh, you can learn it. And so there is a growth mindset. So if Mm -hmm. you just go ahead and learn it, you're able to master it. And I think that uh, in the United States, the fact that parents think that uh, math is, maybe they think about it from their childhood experience. So their childhood experience creates a certain lens through which they process their children's experience. So they think that if it was difficult for them, it would be very difficult for their children. And so they speak it out loud. And so they create uh, certain assumptions that children are then looking forward to justify. So every time they uh, experience a challenge, they say, oh yeah, math is difficult. So then they create sort of the snowball effect of math anxiety. And then it becomes very difficult to kind of uh, work with this mm-hmm. so um i think that um maybe we can actually use the theory of constructed emotions where a certain concept has mm-hmm. been brought up and has created a certain reaction to uh the stimuli which is math. so mm-hmm. i think that it's very much cultural and um i don't see math. Uh, any different from any other subject and so it's really it's really the
0: ideas that people carry about math that have, so. that yeah. have created this so i would say that it's aligned then with lisa feldman barrett's um theory of constructive emotion because it's concepts she's saying emotions are concepts so now we've got a new one that's math anxiety you know i i've, I've done some posts on the different uh words for emotion in different languages and um math anxiety is one now right it's it's a new concept and so yeah just to to for the listeners like the theory of constructed emotion is lisa feldman barrett i think i've got her book right here um how emotions are made and jenny's got the book as well but um yes (laughs) yes love love this book and um you know she's this is not pop science right this is not self-help this is she's a neuroscientist at um north where is she she's in boston uh, i think north yes, Eastern, boston, university. boston university um really big time and um she's caused quite a stir within the affective neuroscience community because the basic presumption of this theory is that emotions are not natural kinds there is no such thing as fear universally sadness joy anger even these basic emotions that was a long time thought that everybody feels and processes the same way and expresses in the same way. She's done a lot of research that says otherwise. And so, um, it's really now coming down in neuroscience to, okay, what are we talking about when we talk about an emotion? And according to her, her research, well, it's the concepts that are created in in culture and that our brain, because it is a prediction machine is predicting constantly which emotion to construct in which situation um, to achieve social fitness, essentially to achieve your social goals. Um, So it's really interesting because it ties into a lot of what sociologists talk about um, with emotional expression, emotion rules, and um, just observing who carries the most of which emotion, right? With women tending to be socialized into feeling more fear and sadness and men socialize into feeling more anger we can see how this is completely culturally constructed so um yeah it's it's really really quite interesting and i'm sure we'll get into some some cool stuff about um this in regards to um russia and the states so tell me tell me what are your thoughts what is your experience on this
1: um yes uh, i think that when i uh obviously uh, Lisa Feldman's, uh theory of constructed emotions is new. And sometimes it's very difficult to process. And actually yeah. just uh, just uh, a couple of months ago, I taught a course on emotions and cognition at the university. And my um, student body was international. So we had uh, students from Asia, from the Middle East, from uh, several African countries, and, and the West as well, the US. So it was very interesting and uh, we had, um, we looked at different situations and then uh, we watched several videos and then we reflected back on how we felt actually we used the um, home base uh, diagram to to reflect on how our emotions changed as we were watching a certain video Mm -hmm. and we discovered that uh, it was so different and the way you perceived or assessed uh what we were looking at we were looking at the same thing was completely different and uh, that difference uh was driven by our experiences and by cultural characteristics that are inherent to uh to our identities mm. so uh yes it, it and actually uh, doing this exercise uh in um, in an international multicultural group is excellent because you can uh see this right away. And we actually also discussed uh, how biases such as implicit biases uh, could be uh, a result of constructed emotions that yes. we uh, certain situations we assess based on what we were told about them, right? So we have been, there have been certain uh, emotions are sort of concepts, right? They are uh, That are yeah. attached. To feelings. And so when we recognize that concept, we uh, drive that feeling. And so uh, it was, uh, it was very interesting to also connect uh, this theory to uh, implicit biases and to uh, some of the stereotypes that are so prevalent, um, especially cross-culturally.
0: Yes. And for this
1: reason, it's so difficult to break it
0: because the culture goes so deep and people don't even realize it, right?
1: Yes. Because yeah. they become automatized. They become so much automatized that you don't even assess it until you right. start learning about this theory and kind of uh, deconstructing, you know, what has been just happened. You know? Yes.
0: So. Yeah. It's really good. And, and I think that they're doing a lot of this in businesses. Um, I wish they would do it more in schools, but um, you know, bias training, you have to do more than that. You have to definitely, you know, teach what is bias and why is this happening? But, you really have to go deeper into identity um, and analyze people's identity or have them do it um, and show them what's the link to emotion. It's proven that it, results show that bias training does not work. You cannot just take two days of a year and learn about your biases. You need to have coaching. You need to have constructive development uh, to go with that type of thing. So it's uh, the identity work is pretty necessary. I mean, we need to do it as a nation in the States. That's for sure. A lot yeah, of this going important. on in Russia.
1: Yeah, that's a part of emotional intelligence. I think that there's uh, emotional intelligence, such a big word. So everyone wants to be emotionally intelligent, but we don't necessarily realize what it takes to be emotionally intelligent. And to be emotionally intelligent, you have to recognize uh, not only your own emotions, but you have to be able to uh, recognize and be able to be open to uh, how a different person might feel. uh, And that the, the feeling that you predict is actually not necessarily the feeling that they have, because again, it's tied back to culture. And so uh, this whole concept of emotional intelligence uh, requires a lot of uh, intense communication where you are uh, constantly aware and you, um, uh, so it's, uh, it requires questioning mm. and listening as opposed to predicting and assuming.
0: Definitely, more perceiving. So what I, you know, with my lens, uh, what you're saying is listen more and it's more about perceiving than judging. And I'm always saying that you can't do both at the same time. Well, to perceive, of course, you need to judge what to perceive and what to listen to. So that inherently is a judgment, but to pass value judgments or to think about what you're going to respond and say, you know, so what you're saying is to listen better. This, this would be, you know, try to get more perceiving instead of judgment, um, and, and certain people have their tendencies in this area you know this is one of the myers-briggs this is the the last column of the big four uh is perceiving versus judging so it's a personality thing apparently although i'm not really big in personality i don't really believe in that
1: <laughs> but i think that also uh not ju- not judging but uh when you talk to people uh, uh, if you look for cause-effect relationships so if uh a certain belief is an effect then uh, my my job or my intention is to understand what's the cause of it and when actually i ask questions about the cause that person may realize that there is no answer so there is no cause and then that person may uh, actually question what he believes so that's that's a great way to also question our own beliefs without being uh rude or without uh, you know Yeah. Offending anyone.
0: Yeah. And I think a lot of times people will cling to their beliefs and not want to deconstruct their reality because this is maybe very scary and it brings up existential anxiety and angst. And okay, if this is right, if I believe this, if I believe this and I felt it so strongly, and now I'm being challenged to think that this is not true, the feeling that I had was so strong, you tell me that that is not true. Well, what else is uh, being constructed here? And well, obviously, the answer is everything, and people do not like to think about that. So uh, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Well, then
1: you just leave a personal alone and let them think. <laughs> uh, without there is no point to prove anything to anyone, you know. So well,
0: unless they're harming someone, of course. But yeah, unless
1: well, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, obviously.
0: Yeah, but you know, this uh, concept of emotion concepts is going to change things greatly, and I hope that it improves um medicine to be honest and i know i've talked about this before that i I really hope that distinguishing between uh emotion which is tied to culture and um you know things like nervous system reactivity right if you're if you're scared of something in your environment if you see a bear or a snake or whatever this is this is something that we should not call fear um according to lisa feldman barrett and similar to people who have experienced trauma and they get high reactivity. Um, it's important for them and clinicians and educators and coaches too to understand that this is there's a physical basis to this. This is not emotionally driven in the sense of like this person's not having social anxiety. Essentially, it's something much different. It's so it's the, so the discussion of it around it needs to be different.
1: Yes, because I mean, there are also hormonal changes, right? Not just so if a person has been under um, stress for a long time, acute stress, so Adrenaline, there are yeah. obviously changes on hormonal level and the person obviously cannot control their reactions uh, mm-hmm. to certain stimuli. So it's, it goes so deep uh, and it's so convoluted, but it's important to at least start uh, to understand that uh, it's much more complex
0: so what do you think is the the next um thing on the horizon for neuroscience and if it's about emotions learning anything like that like what what question compels you the most right now would you say
1: actually i wouldn't focus on neuroscience i would focus on education because i think that there have been uh, quite a bit of discoveries uh on neuroscience and there are a lot of evidence on Uh, how people learn, how we should behave and how we should teach. And for example, in my country, uh, especially within the state uh, where the state system of education prevails with lots of um, requirements, restrictions, it's so difficult to uh, implement this. And uh, so my main concern is how do we make these changes so that our uh, children benefit and they, uh, grow, uh, as confident, uh, people, as opposed mm. to, uh, you know, uh, having educational system hurt them.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: So that's my, uh, uh, my main concern. I want to, uh, work on that and help children become, realize their potential and
0: discover who they are. Mm, that's great. I love it. Well, I think that we've spent a lot of research in neuroscience, um, and I, and I would totally be as supportive of talking more about social issues and yeah, education being one of them. I think that a lot of times neuroscience does help us, but I think we've done so much to the point where, especially within the clinical you know, field of psychology and psychiatry, um, trying to figure out what is causing some mental disorders, mental illnesses, are there biological bases? They they've spent a lot of money researching this and come up with nothing in about forty years. I, I want to say they spent twenty billion dollars. I'd have to check that, um, <clears throat> but it's it's a lot of money they spent researching, and, and this involves neuroscience, and um, it's turning out that the mind is, uh, you know, the brain is in, is involved in a big way, but there's very we need to have a new concept of what the mind is and where the mind is because they're not finding anything. Um,
1: One thing that I'm really interested is uh, because, uh, for example, what I'm talking about changes in education are so much uh, tied to uh, changing behavior of adults to begin with. So I want and it's difficult. So we know that with age. Uh, brain plasticity declines, uh, executive functions decline, it becomes much more difficult, and the processes are so automatized that even if we're gonna share with some of the teachers certain ways, it doesn't mean that they will go and, you know, apply this, right? And so uh, I want to know and I would want to discover some of the effective interventions that would help uh, change behavior of adults. Mm-hmm. And change behavior of parents because parents, same thing, you know, they learn about, they read books, they become educated, but then they come home and they behave in the same way to their children because of the automaticity of behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is what uh, I'm concerned with. I think that if we are able to discover how to teach adults in a way that it changes behavior, Hmm. uh, we can help our children uh, be better off.
0: Absolutely. 100%. I would love that. So yeah, so another thing with emotion and learning and communication that varies a lot cross-culturally is direct negative feedback. And, um, you know, some cultures are more direct than others anyways, but when it comes to negative feedback, there's a special um, dimension. Of, the, of measurement within the communication, especially cross-culturally, that varies. So like we've got America, which is a very low context culture, you know, nation that uh, we speak low context, we get to the point, we don't veil things, they don't have hidden meanings until it comes to negative feedback. And then it's, then it's very much we're on the other side, we're very indirect. So, um, you know, we talk about uncertainty and the emotions that that brings, And it's a very interesting thing to think about when it comes to this. So what's it like for, you know, what's your experience been like, you know, being a teacher and a a leader um, in both cultures?
1: Yes, I think that uh, in general, no one likes negative feedback and uh, people like to be praised and they they want to be identified their growth areas. So that's, I think that even in Russia, uh, which is a very direct, uh, culture, feedback culture, uh, we try to exercise this. But I have, uh, I think I have two cross cultural experiences that illustrate the difference and the tense, tensions that <laughs> this may cause. So, one was uh, during my time at Harvard, I uh, worked at the Career Development Center, and uh, we were doing uh, several joint pro- projects, and we were very pressed on time. And so, just following my kind of russian i mean i've been in the states for quite a while but even then realizing the differences yeah. i was still um sort of inclined to use my style so i would provide if there are certain things that i didn't like or i thought that could be improved i stated that directly mm. and i think sometimes uh my colleagues were a little bit shocked and one day uh my uh, uh the head of uh, my supervisor, she said that I probably shouldn't be that direct because uh, people are kind of shocked. <laughs> and yes. so uh, I'm very thankful to her because before no one really said that, you know, no one gave me that because even this is but direct. Obviously... I'd have to be direct exactly. to tell
0: you. so it's like nobody exactly. will say that.
1: So, <laughs> yes, I appreciate that she did because then I thought of it and I was like, yeah, that's true. I mean, no one does this but but myself. And so it was very, um, you know eight years later i discovered that that difference mm-hmm. and obviously i if i learned it earlier maybe i would have been more effective and, or even the teams work more effective i don't know yeah. Yeah. and so the other the other case uh, was in china so uh again uh we were a, a multicultural team there were a couple of um, swiss colleagues and also a person from uh, china and so we were publishing a book and um our chinese colleague was responsible for uh data and building graphs and so when he submitted his part uh there were no citations and uh when we saw this obviously in the book you have to cite sources we asked so uh why aren't there sources and that was a very direct question it wasn't the negative feedback just the direct question Mm. and he replied that you know uh actually in in china uh all information is public. And so we don't really need to cite anything. And uh, we actually asked him to go and find the sources and he was very offended. So we actually infringed on this concept of uh, losing face when you publicly bring that mistake uh, to the person and he is offended. And so he was very reluctant to work with us. He was very close. So again, while striving for uh, the group efficiency and for the results uh, we actually uh, kind of neglected this aspect uh, for the sake of the result and it uh, as a result uh, we spend much more time getting the work done, as opposed to if probably we ask him in a in a different way, and we were yeah. a bit more thoughtful about this. So this is just the difference of how uh, feedback and communication uh, could really um, change the dynamics of the group uh, in a cross cultural setting.
0: Yes, definitely. And I'm looking at this culture map book, and uh, one of the one of the dimensions is disagreeing and it, whether they are confrontational or they avoid it. And this is similar to direct negative feedback. So we've got Russia on the, on the far left that they're confrontational and China on the far right that they avoid it. So we've got Russia that they're very, uh, very direct with their negative feedback and very confrontational. So. Uh, how do you always. feel about this? <laughs> uh,
1: you know, I, uh, I used to teach one course uh, for a very long time, and I always did the same thing every single uh, first class. So I would give students a, a passage, and then I would ask them to read the passage and tell me what is the topic of the passage. So very yeah. simple academic English question. You know what I will get in return? People say, so, you know, five minutes... Uh, after or 10 minutes after they would uh, when they asked so what's the topic they would start i actually disagree with the author i think he is not right because and i say well actually i didn't really ask whether you agree or disagree (laughs) i asked about the topic of the passage and it's uh, it was systematic yeah yeah so people are constantly looking for i mean at least here in russia i guess people are looking for they're trying to construct uh and uh question uh what is written as opposed to actually doing the task so maybe it's a part of culture again uh, mm. i think it would be interesting to explore
0: that would be right. i don't have the
1: answer but i see the behavioral uh, uh facts of that for sure I
0: just, I just wonder with technology improving and in maybe 10 15 20 years you know you got to imagine that I think cultures would become more similar in with globalization, especially, you know, if cultures are willing to change some of their teaching methods that mm-hmm. I mean, machines are going to be doing a lot of the heavy lifting in the future, like a lot. Of I the think heavy so. lifting.
1: Yeah, definitely. Think- I've seen
0: some stuff that is uh, open AI platforms that, you know, some of the you know, you've got a math calculator that does any calculation for you that you would need um it's basically going to be like that but for the humanities you can just ask a question and it can write a blog for you or it, it's like really nuts what this stuff is capable of so yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, i think we'll be more similar in a lot of ways than different but all right so always love speaking with you about these uh, awesome topics ever since harvard and you know really glad that we're staying in touch and we can continue to learn from each other on these topics that we're passionate about emotion education neuroscience psychology so Thank you so much. Um, tell it was us- a
1: pleasure, Greg. Thank you for inviting. I'm, I'm thrilled to be with you guys.
0: And where can we find you um, online? How can we get in touch with you?
1: You may find me on Facebook. That's the easiest way. So okay. search Evgenia Yefimla, and you can recognize me by my picture.
0: All right. Sounds <laughs> good. Well, I hope that if anybody does have a question, they contact you there. And uh, thanks again. We'll talk soon.
1: Thank you so much.